Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Okay, well, good evening, um, ladies and gentlemen, colleagues. Um, I think we'll make a start. Um, if you, well, we're very busy this evening, as you can see, so um, if, you, if you're not able to get a seat, please do. I hope you can find somewhere at least to perch for the course of the, uh, of the lecture. It's our great pleasure um, this evening to welcome to the University Lord Rees of Ludlow, um, Lord Martin Rees, who people will know is a, uh, a hugely eminent um, cosmologist, he's a space scientist, he's the uh, Royal Astronomer, um, a post created by Charles II in 1665, the second holder of which was Edmund Halley, after whom Halley's Comet, of course, is, is named. So that gives you some idea of the prestige of the lineage in which um, Martin works. Uh, he's also the founder of the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk at the University of Cambridge, and it's been a subject of many of the books by which uh, a wider public has come to know his work, works like uh, Our Final Century, where he discusses the challenges that humankind faces uh, in the 21st century, and which will form the sort of core of what he has to talk to you about uh, tonight. He's also, of course, a former president of the Royal Society uh, and a, a ma the Master of Trinity College, Cambridge. And so it's, it's, it's a great privilege for us to be able to welcome you here this evening, Lord Rees, and to hear what you have to say. And uh, thank you very much for coming to the University of Bath. Welcome. Hands 
and when the main dangers to us come from humans and not from nature. And 12 years ago, I wrote a book on this theme, which Nick mentioned, entitled Our Final Century. That's the question mark in the title, but the publishers cut that out. <laughs> and the American publishers changed the title to Our Final Hour. Americans like instant gratification. <laughs> well, I didn't think we'd wipe ourselves out. I didn't think we'd be lucky to avoid devastating setbacks. We've had one lucky escape already, of course. And populations deemed by some a taboo subject, tainted by association with eugenics in the 20s and 30s, with Indian policies under Indira Gandhi, and more recently with China's hardline one-child policy. Well, can 9 billion people be fed? My layman's impression is the answer is yes. Improved agriculture, low-till, water-conserving, and perhaps involving GM crops, together with better engineering to reduce waste, to improve irrigation and so forth, could sustainably feed 9 billion by mid-century. And the buzz phrase is sustainable intensification. But there will need to be lifestyle changes. The world couldn't sustain even its present population if everyone lived like Americans do today, using as much energy and eating as much beef. Population trends beyond 2050 are harder to predict, because they'll depend on what people now in their teens and 20s decide about the number and spacing of their children. Enhanced education and empowerment of women, surely a benign priority in itself, could reduce fertility rates where they're now still high, but this demographic transition hasn't yet reached parts of India and sub-Saharan Africa. But if families in Africa remain large by choice, then according to the UN, that continent's population could double again by 2100 to 4 billion, thereby raising global population to 11 billion. And Nigeria alone would then have as big a population as Europe and North America combined, and almost half of the world's children would be in Africa. Well, optimists remind us that every extra mouth brings also two hands and a brain. Nonetheless, the higher the population becomes, the greater will be all pressures on resources, especially if the developing world narrows its gap to the developed world in per capita consumption. And the harder it will be for Africa to escape the poverty trap. 
So we must surely hope that the global figure doesn't rise anymore after 2050 and even declines. Moreover, if humanity's collective impact on nature pushes too hard against what the Swedish scientist Johan Rockström calls planetary boundaries, the resultant ecological shock could irreversibly impoverish our biosphere. Extinction rates are rising. We're destroying the book of life before we've read it. Biodiversity is a crucial component of human well-being. We're clearly harmed if fish stocks dwindle to extinction. There are plants in the rainforest whose gene pool might be useful to us. But for many environmentalists, preserving the richness of our biosphere has value in its own right, over and above what it means to us humans. To quote the great ecologist E.O. Wilson, mass extinction is the sin that future generations will least forgive us for. So the world's getting more crowded. And as a second firm prediction, it's gradually getting warmer. In contrast to population issues, climate change is certainly not under-discussed, though it may be underacted upon. The one thing that's clear is the famous Keeling curve, which shows the concentration of carbon dioxide in the air that's rising, mainly due to the burning of fossil fuels. But it's still unclear how much the climatic effect of rising CO2 is amplified by associated changes in water vapour and clouds. And the fifth IPCC report presented a big range of predictions. But despite the uncertainties, there are two messages that most would agree on. First, regional disruptions in weather patterns within the next 20 or 30 years will aggravate pressures on food and water and engender extra migration. But secondly, under business-as-usual scenarios, we can't rule out, by the end of a century, really catastrophic warming and tipping points triggering long-term trends like the melting of Greenland's ice cap. But even people who accept both those statements, the medium term and the longer term, have diverse views on a policy response. And I think it's important to realise that these divergences stem less from differences about science than from differences in economics and ethics, in particular in how much obligation we should feel towards future generations. Economists who apply a standard discount rate, as, for instance, Born Lomberg's Copenhagen Consensus does, they're in effect writing off what happens beyond 2050. So unsurprisingly, they downplay the priority of addressing climate change compared to other ways of helping the world's poor in the shorter term. But if you care about those who live in the 22nd century and beyond, then, as economists like Nick Stern and Weizmann at Harvard argue, you deem it worth paying an insurance premium now to protect those generations against the possible worst-case scenarios. So even those who agree that there's a significant risk of climate catastrophe a century hence will differ in how urgently they advocate action today. Their assessment will depend on expectations of future growth, optimism about technological fixes. But above all, it depends on an ethical issue, 
in optimizing people's life chances do we discriminate, as it were, on grounds of date of birth? As a parenthesis, I'd note there's one policy context where an essentially zero discount rate is already applied. That's to radioactive waste disposal, where the depositories are required to prevent leakage for 10,000 years. And it's somewhat ironic that we do this when we can't plan the rest of energy policy even 20 or 30 years ahead. Consider this analogy. Suppose astronomers had tracked an asteroid and calculated it would hit the Earth in 2080. 63 years from now, not with certainty, but with, say, 10% probability. Would we relax, saying it's a problem that can be set on one side for 50 years? People would then be richer, and it may turn out it's going to miss the Earth anyway. I don't think we would. I think there'd be a consensus that we should then start straight away and do our damnedest to find ways to deflect it or mitigate its effect. Well, what would actually happen on the climate policy front? The pledges made a year ago at the Paris conference were a positive step. But even if they're honoured, CO2 concentrations will rise steadily throughout the next 20 years. But by then, we'll know with far more confidence from a longer time base of data and also for better modelling just how strong the feedback is from water vapour and clouds. If the so-called climate sensitivity is low, then we relax. But if it's large, and climate consequently seems on an irreversible trajectory into dangerous territory, there may be pressure for panic measures, some sort of plan B, being fatalistic about continuing dependence on fossil fuels, but combating its effects by a massive investment in carbon capture and storage, or else by geoengineering. A word about geoengineering. It's feasible, for instance, to inject enough aerosols into the stratosphere to cool the world's climate. Indeed, what's scary is that this might be within the resources of a single nation, even a single corporation. And there could be unintended side effects. Moreover, the warming would return with a vengeance if these countermeasures were ever discontinued. And other consequences of rising CO2, for instance, the deleterious effect of ocean acidification, would be unchecked. Geoengineering would be a political nightmare. Not all nations would want to adjust the thermostat the same way. And very elaborate climate models would be needed to calculate the regional impacts of any artificial intervention. The only beneficiaries would actually be the lawyers. They'd have a real bonanza if nations could litigate over bad weather. But I think it's prudent to explore geoengineering and the possible techniques, at least enough to clarify which options make sense and perhaps to damp down undue optimism about some technical quick fix of our climate. Many still hope that our civilization can segue smoothly towards a low-carbon future. But politicians won't gain much resonance by advocating a bare-bones approach that entails unwelcome lifestyle changes, especially if the benefits are far away and decades in the future. But there are three measures which could mitigate climate change which seem politically realistic. First, of course, 
All countries could improve energy efficiency, insulate buildings better, and so forth, and thereby clearly save money. Second, we could target cuts to methane, black carbon, and CFC emissions. These are subsidiary contributors to long-term warming, but unlike CO2, they also cause local pollution in Chinese cities, for instance. So there's a stronger incentive to do something about them. But third and most importantly, nations should expand R&D into all forms of low-carbon energy generation. Renewables, fourth-generation nuclear, fusion and the rest. And into other technologies where parallel progress is crucial, especially storage. Batteries, compressed air, pump storage, flywheels, etc., and smart grids. And that's why an encouraging outcome of the Paris Conference was an initiative called Mission Innovation. It was launched by President Obama and Indian Prime Minister Modi and endorsed by the G7 nations, plus India and China, and a dozen others. It's hoped they'll pledge to double their publicly funded R&D into clean energy by 2020 and coordinate their efforts. And there was a parallel pledge by Bill Gates and other private philanthropists. The target's a modest one, because presently only 2% of publicly funded R&D is devoted to these challenges. Why shouldn't that percentage be comparable to spending on medical or defence research? The faster these clean energies advance, the sooner will their prices fall, so they become affordable to developing countries where more generating capacity will be needed, where the health of the poorest billions is now jeopardised by smoky stoves, burning wood or dung, and where, unless the prices of renewables come down, there'll be obvious pressure to build more coal-fired power stations. And it will be hard to think of a more inspiring challenge for young engineers than devising clean energy systems for the world. All Renewables have their niches. Wind, tides, waves, and hydro here in the UK, for instance. And an attractive scenario for Europe, in the long run, though, might be large-scale solar energy, coupled with a transcontinental DC smart grid network. North-south to transmit power from the sunny south, southern Spain or even Morocco, up to the north, and also east-west, to smooth over peak demand in different time zones. The peak's always about 7 o'clock in the evening, and you need efficient storage as well. Of course, as I mentioned, the unique difficulty of motivating CO2 reductions is that their impact of any action not only lies decades ahead, but is globally diffused. In contrast, for most politicians, the immediate trumps the long term and the local trumps the global and electoral considerations are dominant overall. So climate issues, which gained prominence actually before the Paris conference, um, are slipping down the agenda again, and will do so unless there's continuing public concern. And I'll come back later to discuss how this can be achieved. But regarding these technologies, I think we should be evangelists for new technologies. Without them... The world can't provide food and sustainable energy for an expanding and more demanding population. But we need wisely directed technology 
Indeed, many are anxious that it's advancing so fast that we may not properly cope with it and that we'll have a bumpy ride through this century. And in the second part of my talk, let me expand on these concerns. Our world increasingly depends on elaborate networks, electric power grids, air traffic control, international finance, global dispersed manufacturing, and so forth. Unless these networks are highly resilient, their benefits could be outweighed by catastrophic, albeit rare, breakdowns, real-world analogues of what happened to the financial system in 2008. Our cities will be paralyzed without electricity. Supermarket shelves empty within days if supply chains were disrupted. Air travel can spread a pandemic worldwide within days, causing the gravest havoc in the shambolic megacities of the developing world. And social media can spread panic and rumor and economic contagion literally at the speed of light. So to guard against the downsides threatening such an interconnected world plainly requires international collaboration. For instance, whether or not a pandemic gets global grip may hinge on how quickly a Vietnamese poultry farmer can report any strange sickness. Advances in microbiology, diagnostic, vaccines and antibiotics offer prospects of containing pandemics. But the same research already has controversial aspects. For instance, in 2012, research groups in Wisconsin and in Holland showed it was surprisingly easy to make the influenza virus both more virulent and more transmissible. To some, this was a scary portent of things to come. And indeed, in 2014, the US federal government decided to cease funding these so-called gain-of-function experiments. And the new CRISPR-Cas techniques for gene editing are hugely promising. But there are already ethical concerns raised by Chinese experiments on human embryos and by possible unintended consequences of gene drive program, where you try to eliminate a particular uh, species. Back in the early days of recombinant DNA research, this is in the 1970s, a group of biologists met in Asilomar, California, and they agreed guidelines on what experiments should and shouldn't be done. This seemingly encouraging precedent has triggered several recent meetings to discuss the new developments I've mentioned in the same spirit. But today, 40 years after Asilomar, the research community is far more broadly international, far more influenced by commercial pressure. And I worry that whatever regulations are imposed on prudential or ethical grounds can't be enforced worldwide any more than the drug laws can or the tax laws can. So I worry that whatever can be done will be done by someone somewhere. And that's a nightmare. Whereas an atomic bomb can't be built without large-scale special-purpose facilities, biotech involves small-scale, dual-use equipment. Indeed, biohacking is burgeoning even as a hobby and competitive game among students. And we know all too well that technical expertise doesn't guarantee balanced rationality. The global village will have its village idiots, and they'll have global range. 
the rising empowerment of tech-savvy groups, or even individuals, by bio as well as cyber technology, will pose a really intractable challenge to governments and aggravate the tension between freedom, privacy, and security. I see no other solution. Concerns about bio-error and bio-terror are fairly near-term, the next 10 or 15 years. What about looking further ahead to 2050 and beyond? The smartphone, the web and their ancillaries would have seen magic even just 20 years ago. So looking several decades ahead, we should keep our minds open or at least ajar to transformative advances that may now seem science fiction. On the bio front, the great physicist Freeman Dyson conjectures a time when children will be able to design and create new organisms, just as routinely as his generation played with chemistry sets. Well, if it indeed becomes possible to, as it were, play God on the kitchen table, our ecology and even our species may not survive long unscathed. And what about another transformative technology, robotics and artificial intelligence, AI? There's been exciting advances in what's called generalized machine learning quite recently. As you may have heard, DeepMind, a small London company now bought by Google, last year achieved a remarkable feat. Its computer beat the world champion in the game of Go. And Carnegie Mellon University just recently developed a machine that can bluff and calculate as well as the best human players of poker. Well, at first, this may not seem a big deal, because you may know that 20 years ago, IBM's Deep Blue computer beat Kasparov, the world chess champion. But Deep Blue was programmed in detail by expert chess players. In contrast, the machines that play Go and poker gained expertise by absorbing a huge number of games and playing against themselves. Their designers don't themselves know how the machines made seemingly specially insightful decisions or moves. The speed of computers, of course, allows them to succeed by brute force methods. They learn to identify dogs, cats, and human faces by crunching through millions of images, not the way a baby learns. They learn to translate by reading millions of pages of, for example, multilingual EU documents. They never get bored. <laughs> but the advances are patchy. Robots are still clumsier than a child in moving pieces on a real chessboard. They can't yet tie your shoelaces or cut old people's toenails. But sensor technology, speech recognition, information searches and so on are advancing apace. They won't just take over manual work. Indeed, plumbing and gardening will be among the hardest jobs to automate. They'll take over also routine legal work, medical diagnostics, accountancy, and even surgery. And the big social and economic question is then, will this second machine age be like earlier disruptive technologies, the car, for instance, and create as many jobs as it destroys, or is it really different this time? There's a big debate about this. The money earned by robots 
will clearly generate huge wealth for an elite, the owners of the robots. But to preserve a healthy society, we require massive redistribution to ensure that everyone has at least a living wage. And rather than this being a handout, I'm sure the best thing is to create large numbers of public service jobs where the human element is crucial and is now undervalued and demand is huge. The most obvious one is caring for old people and teaching assistants. But there are others, custodians, gardeners in public parks and things like that. So I think there will need to be massive redistribution, creating all these jobs with greater dignity and status than they now have, uh, using the wealth earned by the robots. Let's now look even further ahead. If robots could observe and interpret their environment as adeptly as we do, and they're far from that now, they would truly be perceived as intelligent beings, to which or to whom we can relate. And these machines, of course, pervade popular culture. Movies like Her, Transcendence, Expokina, and the others. Well, if this happens, will we have obligations towards them? We worry if our fellow humans, and even some animals, can't fulfill their natural potential. So, should we feel guilty if these robots are underemployed or bored? And what if a machine develops a mind of its own? Would it stay docile? Or might it go rogue? If it could infiltrate the Internet and the Internet of Things, it could manipulate the rest of the world. And it may have goals utterly orthogonal to human wishes, or even treat humans as an encumbrance. Well, some AI pundits take this seriously and think the field already needs guidelines, just as we all agree biotech does. But others do regard these concerns as rather premature and worry less about artificial intelligence than about real stupidity and think that's going to be the case for some time. But be that as it may, it's likely that society will be transformed by autonomous robots, even though the jury's out on whether they'll be uh, idiot savants or whether they will ever display superhuman capabilities. Incidentally, there's disagreement about the route towards human-level intelligence. Some think we, could em we should emulate nature and reverse-engineer the human brain. Others say that's as misguided as trying to design a flying machine by copying how birds flap their wings. We just don't know. The futurologist Ray Kurzweil, now working at Google, is famous for advocating that we're getting near the so-called singularity, he argues that once, human, once machines have surpassed human capabilities, they could themselves design and assemble a new generation of even more powerful ones, leading to a real intelligence explosion. He thinks humans could transcend biology by merging with computers. I guess in old-style spiritualist parlance, he says they will go over to the other side. Well, Kurzweil is the leading proponent of this singularity, but he's in his 60s, and he's worried it may not happen in his lifetime. He takes dozens of pills every day, and he wants his body frozen when he dies until his nirvana is reached. I was once interviewed by a group of these cryonic enthusiasts based in California. Where else would they be? Called the Society for the Abolition of Involuntary Death. <laughs> and they will freeze your body so that when immortality is on offer, you can be resurrected or your brain downloaded. 
I told him I'd rather end my days in an English churchyard than a Californian refrigerator. <laughs> and they derided me as a really old-fashioned deathist, that was their phrase. But I was surprised to find that three academics in this country have gone in for cryonics. Two have paid the full whack, the third's taken the cut prize option of wanting just his head frozen. <laughs> but I'm glad they're all from Oxford, not from my university or yours. <laughs> but of course, research on ageing is being seriously prioritised. Will the benefits be incremental, or is ageing a disease that can be cured? Dramatic life extension will clearly be a real wild card in population projections with huge social ramifications. But it may happen, along with human enhancement in other forms, new fundamental forms of inequality. And now a brief digression into my special interest, space. This is where robots surely have a future. During this century, the whole solar system would be explored by flotillas of miniaturized probes far more advanced than uh, ESA's Rosetta or the NASA probe that transmitted pictures back from Pluto 10,000 times further away than the moon. Those instruments, incidentally, were built and designed 15 years ago. Think how much better we could do even today. Later this century, giant robotic fabricators may build lightweight structures floating in space using raw materials mined from the moon or asteroids. And all these advances will erode the practical case for human spaceflight. Nonetheless, I hope people will follow the robots into deep space, though it will be as risk-seeking adventurers, not for practical goals. The most promising developments are spearheaded by private companies. SpaceX, led by Elon Musk, who also makes Tesla electric cars, has launched unmanned payloads. It's docked with the space station. He hopes soon to offer orbital flights to paying customers. And beyond that, some wealthy adventurers are signing up for a week-long trip round the far side of the moon, going further from Earth than any human being has been before, but avoiding the challenge of a moon landing and blast-off. I'm told they've sold a ticket for the second flight, but not the first flight. <laughs> Maybe that tells you something about it. Well, I think we should acclaim these private enterprise efforts in space, because they can tolerate higher risks than the Western government could impose on publicly funded civilians, and thereby cut costs compared to NASA or ESA. But they should be promoted as adventures or extreme sports. The phrase space tourism should be avoided because that lulls people into unrealistic confidence that it's safe. But I think that by the end of this century, courageous pioneers in the mold of, say, Serranoff Fines. Um, the British adventurer who dragged a sledge across the Antarctic in winter, or Felix Baumgartner who broke the sound barrier in free fall for a balloon. People like that may have established bases independent from the Earth, on Mars or maybe on asteroids. And Musk himself says he wants to die on Mars but not on impact. <laughs> and he's 45 years old now so he might make it. But don't ever expect mass emigration from the Earth. No way in our solar system offers an environment even as clement as the Antarctic or the top of Everest. It's a dangerous delusion to think that space offers an escape from the Earth's problems. There's no planet B. 
Indeed, space is an inherently hostile environment for humans. And for that reason, even though we may wish to regulate genetic and cyborg technology on Earth, we should surely wish these space pioneers way out there good luck in using all such techniques to adapt to alien conditions. And this might be the first step towards divergence into, into a new species, the beginning of the post-human era. And it would also ensure that advanced life would survive even if the worst conceivable catastrophe befell our planet. As an astronomer, I'm sometimes asked, does contemplation of huge expanses of space and time affect your everyday life? But having spent much of my life among astronomers, I have to tell you they're not specially serene. They fret as much as anyone else about what happens next week or tomorrow. But they do bring one special perspective, an awareness of the far future. Let me explain. The stupendous time spans of the evolutionary past are now part of common culture, unless you live in Kentucky or parts of the Muslim world. But most people still tend to regard humans as the culmination of the evolutionary tree. That hardly seems credible to an astronomer. Our sun formed four and a half billion years ago, but it's got six billion years more before the fuel runs out. And the expanding universe will continue maybe forever. To quote Woody Allen, eternity is very long, especially towards the end. <laughs> well, it may take just decades to develop human-level AI, or it may take centuries. But be it as it may, that time is but an instant compared to the cosmic future stretching ahead. There must be chemical and metabolic limits to the size and processing power of uh, wet organic brains. Perhaps we're close to them already. But fewer limits will constrain electric computers, still less perhaps quantum computers. For these, the potential for future development could be as dramatic as the evolution from pre-Cambrian organisms to humans. So by any definition of thinking, the amount and intensity that's done by organic human-type brains will be utterly swamped by billions of years of future cogitations by AI. Moreover, the Earth's environment may suit us organics, but interplanetary and interstellar space may be the preferred arena where robotic fabrication will have the grandest scope for construction, and where non-biological brains may develop powers that humans can't even imagine. Well, I've got no time to speculate further beyond this flaky fringe, perhaps a good thing, so let me finish in my last five or ten minutes by focusing back closer to the here and now. Because, as I said at the beginning, even in the concertinaed timeline that astronomers envisage, extending billions of years into the future as well as into the past, this century may be a defining era, the century when humans jumpstart the transition to electronic and potentially immortal entities which spread their influence beyond the Earth and far transcend our limitations, or, to take a darker view, the century when our follies could foreclose this immense future potential. One lesson I draw from the issues I've raised today is that we fret unduly about small risks. Air crashes, carcinogens in food, low radiation doses, etc. But we're in denial about some of these newly emergent threats, which may seem improbable, 
but whose consequences could be globally devastating. Some of these are environmental, others are the potential downsides of new technology. So how can scientists concerned about these issues, or indeed scientists concerned about the social impact of any uh, new advance, gain traction with policymakers? Some scientists, of course, have a formal advisory role with government. Back in World War II, Winston Churchill valued scientists' advice, but he famously kept them on tap, not on top. And it is indeed the elected politicians who should make decisions. But scientific advisors should be prepared to challenge decision-makers and help them navigate this uncertain future. President Obama recognised this. He opined that scientists' advice should be heeded, I quote, even when it's inconvenient, indeed especially when it's inconvenient. And he appointed John Holder from Harvard as his science advisor, and the dream team of others were given top posts, including the Nobel physicist Steve Chu. They had a predictably frustrating time, but John Holder hung in there for Obama's full eight years. And, of course, we're all anxious what's going to happen under the new regime. And pessimistic, most of us. Well, the British counterparts of John Holden et al., from Solly Zuckerman to Mark Walpert, have had it slightly easier because the interface with government in this country is smoother. The respect for evidence is stronger and the rapport between scientists and legislators is better. For instance, dialogues with uh, parliamentarians led, despite divergent ethical stances, to a generally admired legal framework on embryos and stem cells, for instance, a contrast to what happened in the US. And the HFEA offers another fine precedent. But we've had our failures. The GM crop debate was left too late to a time when opinion was already polarised between echo campaigners on the one side and commercial interests on the other. And there are habitual grumbles that it's hard for advisers to gain sufficient traction. This isn't surprising because for politicians the focus is on the urgent and parochial and getting re-elected. Issues that attract their attention are those that get headlined in the media and fill their inboxes. And for just that reason, I think scientists might have more leverage on politicians indirectly by campaigning so that the public and the media amplify their voice rather than by more official and direct channels. They can engage by involvement with NGOs, by blogging and journalism, or through political activity. The scope for campaigners on all the issues I've mentioned, and many others. For instance, the genetic code pioneer John Sulston campaigns for affordable drugs for Africa. And incidentally, the uh, uh, finest pioneering exemplars of this were the atomic scientists who helped to make the first atomic bomb, and many of them, after the end of World War II, returned to their academic careers, but they didn't feel they could uh, ignore what they'd done. Uh, They devoted a fraction of their lives to doing all they could to harness the powers they'd helped unleash. And I think they set a very good example for scientists in general, and uh, this is followed up by Pogwash conferences and other events like that. I think also that in terms of raising public concern about these issues, religious leaders have a role. Um, I'm perhaps surprised you're on the council of the Papal Academy of Sciences, which is itself a very ecumenical body. 
Its members represent people of all faiths or none. One distinguished member in the past was uh, the uh, molecularologist Max Perutz, and he was in a group of four who acted as emissaries of the then Pope to go around and see political leaders to promote arms control. And recently, my economist colleague in Cambridge, Parthas Gupta, along with Ramanathan, a climate scientist from uh, California, two lapsed Hindus in their religion, uh, they achieved great leverage by organizing a meeting at the Vatican on climate and environment, getting the very best scientists and economists like uh, Stiglitz and Sachs as well, and that laid the groundwork for the papal encyclical on climate and environment, which came out in the summer of 2015, a few months before the Paris conference. There's no gain saying the Catholic Church's global reach nor its long-term perspective, nor its concern for the world's poor. And the encyclical emphasized our responsibility to the developing world and to future generations. And in the lead-up to Paris, it had timely influence on voters and leaders in Latin America, Africa, and East Asia. I was going to say in the American Republican Party, but I think its influence there was rather limited. Science, though, is a universal culture, spanning all nations and faiths. So scientists confront fewer impediments in straddling political divides. The famous Pugwash conferences started by Joe Rotblatt did this in the Cold War and continued to do it. And to take another example, the governing board of Sesame, a physics project in Jordan, gets Israelis and Iranians around the same table even today. So scientists can help to... Uh, straddle political boundaries. And, of course, the big challenges I've addressed are essentially global, coping with potential shortages of food, water, resources, and transitioning to low-carbon energy can't be solved by each nation separately, nor can threat reduction. Indeed, a key issue is whether nations need to give up more sovereignty to new organizations along the lines of the International Atomic Energy Authority, World Health Organization, and so on, and also whether academies of various kinds can get more involved. But universities, I think, have a special role. We academics are privileged to have at least some influence over successive generations of students. Indeed, younger people who expect to survive most of this century are more anxious about long-term issues and are more prepared to support effective altruism and other causes. And universities also are highly international institutions. And we should use their convening power to gather experts together to address these problems. And that's why some of us in Cambridge, with international advisors, have set up the Centre for the Study of Existential Risks, with a focus on the more extreme, low-probability, high-consequence threats that might confront us. They surely deserve expert analysis to assess which can be dismissed firmly as science fiction and which of these should be on our risk register to consider how to enhance resilience against the more credible of these long-term technological threats and to warn against technological developments that could run out of control. And even if we reduce these risks by only a tiny percentage, the stakes are so high that we'll have earned our keep. And we should worry about these, because a wise mantra is the unfamiliar is not the same as the improbable. 
I think actually all scientists should be prepared to divert some of their efforts towards public policy and engage with governments, business and uh, NGOs. This is what the uh, uh, atomic scientists did after World War II and the Pugwash group. And I think there's another way to put this, uh, which was expressed rather well by Sir Michael Atiyah, a great mathematician who was chairman of Pugwash. He said that uh, um, uh, scientists should not uh, um, be uninterested in how their discoveries are applied. They should do all they can to promote beneficial applications and to guard against harmful ones. They won't necessarily be, be powerful enough to succeed, but they should still try. It's rather like if you're a parent of adolescent children, you can't determine what they will do necessarily, but you're a poor parent if you don't care what happens to them. Likewise, you're a poor scientist if you don't care what happens to the ideas that you have originated, which they're, in a sense, your creations. And I think we ought to think in universities how we can do more uh, to address these questions. One interesting example in the US is something called the Jason Group, which is a group which involves top-ranked academic scientists, originally mainly physicists, but now across all fields. Uh, they were bankrolled by the Defense Department, but they choose their own members, and it's been going since the 1960s, and some members like Freema Dyson have been there for 50 years. This group, the Jasons, they spend about six weeks together in the summer with other meetings during the year, so it's a serious commitment. And the sociology and the chemistry of this group hasn't been fully replicated anywhere else. And I think we should try it in the UK, not for the military, but in civilian areas. For instance, in the remit of DEFRA or Department of Transport. The challenge is to assemble a group of really top-ranked scientists who enjoy cross-disciplinary interaction and tossing ideas around. And it won't take off unless they dedicate enough time to it, not just sitting around a table for a day and a civil servant taking minutes. They've got to be together for long enough to actually have some ideas. And they've got to address the kind of problems that play to their strengths. So that's just one idea. So to sum up, I think we can truly be techno-optimists. The innovations that will drive economic advance, information technology, biotech and nanotech, can boost the developing as well as the developed world. But there's a depressing gap between what we could do and what actually happens. So will richer countries recognise that it's in their own interests for the developing world fully to share the benefits of globalisation? And can nations sustain non-repressive governance in the face of threats from small groups with high-tech expertise? Can we reap the benefits of technology without the downsides? And above all, can our institutions prioritise projects which are long-term in a political perspective, even if a mere instant in the history of our planet? We're all on this crowded world together, and our responsibility to our children, to the poorest, and to our stewardship of life's diversity surely demands that we don't leave a depleted and hazardous world. And I give the very last word to the eloquent biologist Peter Medawar. I quote, The bells that toll for mankind are like the bells of alpine cattle. They're attached to our own necks, and it must be our fault if they don't make a tuneful and melodious sound. Thank you for listening.
thank you very much. It was as wonderful as we thought it, it would be. You, you can't hear me. I, apologies again for the Okay. But it did impede us from listening to C- Could you hear much of that? <laughs> okay. Good. We've okay. got a few minutes for a handful of questions. Um, so please, if you have a question, uh, do just ask it really quickly. Um, shove your hand up now. We'll get a mic to you, and then we'll take some questions uh, to the audience now. Who wants to start? Hello? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's, it's purely honorary. It was the person who ran the Greenwich Observatory, but that became a museum in the 1960s when we started to be able to use telescopes under clear skies abroad. So there are no duties now. I like to say the duties are so exiguous that I can do them posthumously. I didn't ever give up. Yeah. How do you see the rise of antibiotic-resistant pathogens as affecting uh, the Western world? Yes. Well, uh, this is a very serious question. Uh, that um, uh, the uh, antibiotics we use become uh, ineffective because um, uh, the bugs uh, evolve so as to survive them, and this is a serious issue. And uh, I think we owe a lot to uh, uh, Sally Davis, the chief medical officer, who was done a lot to uh, alert not just the UK, but the world to this problem. And there was a rather good report by, um, uh, um, by, the, by the government, by, um, what was his name? Uh, Lord O'Neill. O'Neill. Yeah, that's right, um, uh, recently, um, on this issue. And the question, the problem is that um, uh, we need to develop new antibiotics, but the big drug companies would rather develop a drug that you need all your life, like one for arthritis or something like that, rather than one that you only need for a short time. And so uh, he was discussing how one can incentivize the production of, uh, of new drugs to replace the ones to which uh, uh, the bugs are, uh, um, are getting immune. Um, so this is a very serious issue. And, of course, the other thing which is uh, aggravating it is the use, particularly in America, of um, uh, antibiotics um, to give to cattle. Um, to promote their growth. So uh, if you eat beef in America, you're eating lots of antibiotics. And, uh, and that's something which should surely be stopped. But it is, it is a very serious issue. And uh, uh, the, um, the doomsters say that we will get back to the 19th century when we can't cope with uh, any infectious diseases. Uh, thank you very much. Does that then lead on to questions of the difficulties of things like intellectual property and the source of research funding? I mean, we're in, living in an era where public expenditure is almost being ridiculed, that mm. the private has priority. Yes. What are the implications then for that? Do we need a better emphasis on publicly funded research rather than privately funded research? Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, I think we need more public funded research, not just in this area, but in energy and everywhere else. But, of course, in the, in the drug business, uh, uh, as you know, we need ripping off of... Uh, uh, by by raising the price by a factor of 10 and all that. Um, but also, I mean, to, to be fair, uh, at least one company um, has uh, uh, accepted that you sell at a lower price in Africa than you, than you do in this country um, in order to provide access to, to them. And then, then, of course, the uh, uh, drugs get a patent and then generic ones come down. But, but I think uh, uh, clearly the uh, research that has to be publicly funded um, pre-competitive research is going to be crucial and that, that is why uh, we do have to realise that we do have to continue the funding of that. So that's something else we all have to keep banging on about. The, uh, the sum is small but it's very important to 
maintain strong research in this country um, for, for two reasons. Uh, what one is, obviously, that the output of that research is going to be important. Um, but secondly, um, if we don't support research here, uh, we won't get good faculty at our universities. Our universities won't then, then teach so well, and we will lose one of the uh, uh, competitive advantages we have over most countries in the strength of our universities. So there are all kinds of reasons why uh, we ought not to, uh, to stint too much on that funding. Uh, yeah. um, what do you think is the outlook for the uh, solar industry in this country? What would the um, increased taxes and the decrease in the feed-in tariffs recently? For, 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 uh, the outlook for what, sorry? For the solar industry. So in is it, yes. Um, well, uh, again, I don't know, but I think... Um, uh, uh, I, I think it's very important that we should continue to uh, bring down the cost of uh, photovoltaics and also explore the, uh, um, the other kinds of solar energy because I personally think it probably has a lot more uh, potential than, than wind because if wind uh, is inherently big, heavy engineering and you can't imagine that change very much whereas uh, you can imagine uh, very different photovoltaics which can bring down the cost a lot. But in conjunction, then we do need to think about storage, better batteries and other ways, and also, um, as I mentioned, a, a smart grid. So the high, high voltage DC grid, so that you can transmit power thousands of miles without too much losses. So uh, I think this is a, a huge project for Europe in particular. Um, it's a big project, but not nearly as big as building the railways in the 19th century. So we ought to, uh, not to shy away from it. I'm going to steal the last question, yes. if you can hear me. Uh, you, here we go. Ah. Uh, okay, yeah. And it's quite a political question, yes, but yes. Um, you know, I think it's appropriate. Yeah. You said science was a universal culture. Yes, yes. What do you think the impact of Brexit will be on British science? Um, well, I think I'll answer that at two levels. I mean, I think, um, uh, obviously, at the funding level, we, uh, we get some funding from Europe, and we've got to either stay in uh, the European Research Council and Horizon 2020 or not, or our government has to pledge to, uh, um, to supply that. But even that's not enough, because I think the uh, important thing about science is that it is very international. Uh, in my small department in Cambridge, uh, the last five faculty appointments have all been from abroad, um, and uh, that's not, not unusual. So it's, it's international. And I think it won't be enough just to provide the funding and visas for a few skilled people, because I know there have been cases of people in, in my university uh, from mainland Europe who have uh, uh, declined post the Brexit uh, um, vote, um, because even if they get a visa, they don't feel that their family can come freely in the way that they would like to happen if they uh, are going to establish their life with us here. And so I think it's going to be, it's going to be a loss in any case, even if it's not just the funding. And so uh, I think um, that that's why, in, in a poll, 93% of scientists were um, uh, against Brexit, um, and for all those reasons. But I think, you know, uh, uh, in my case, I was very much uh, uh, a Remainer, um, but I think my most important reason was not, not to do with this at all, but simply that, especially in the present world, uh, we want to uh, uh, strengthen um, Europe as a unity and as a cultural force, uh, given what's happening in, uh, in Russia and the United States. Well, I want to thank Lord Rees uh, for a wonderful presentation and a wonderful talk.